All right, friends, Greg Kokel, Stand to Reason, and thank you for being part of our show today. I, uh, I want to start out by answering a question that was asked me on a recent uh, Meet the Teacher, Meet the Instructor, the kind of thing that we do on occasion with instructors, instructors for Stand to Reason University, and I think all of us have done this, all of us who have been, been involved in making classes. If you don't know about STRU, that is our way of kind of adding more in-depth education on a particular topic. I just recently did one on the issue of moral relativism, for example, and I, I actually got an email from Stand to Reason. I mean, I receive our emails too, you know, because I like to see what we're, what we're doing and what other people are getting. And there was a little teaser, like one episode of that particular STRU, and I watched it. I thought, man, that's not bad. Uh, <laughs> I think that anybody who watches that teaser, so to speak, which was one episode, is going to um, see the value of uh, of the Stand Reason University, and and hopefully uh, sign up for a course. But uh, I just those who have taken courses have a chance. I think three courses or more have a chance to be part of an interaction with an instructor on when on a kind of live interaction. They go on the. Uh, Facebook or uh, wherever we go, <laughs> I don't know, somebody else pushes the buttons for me, and we interact with the people and answer, uh, answer questions. One of the questions came up, though, I thought was really helpful for a kind of a wider use, and that is, um, what's the first question I must ask to develop my own convictions about religion? <clears throat> what is the first question I must ask to develop my own convictions about religion. I think that's the way it was put. I wrote it down, I, uh, and I like that way of characterizing it. Um, and, and plus the question um, properly presumes that when it comes to questions like religion, what we're trying to find out is what is true about reality. We are not just trying to find a religious club that uh, makes us feel good. Remember, it was Marx that said religion— is the opiate of the people. That is, religion is what you take to make you feel better. It's a drug. It doesn't have any benefit in itself apart from lifting your spirits um, and making you feel better about the world. Now, of course, if what religion tells you isn't true about the world, then I'm not sure why it lifts anybody's spirits to believe something that is not true. But in any event, that's the way a lot of people approach it. It's relativistic. And so if we're instead asking the proper question, what is the world actually like? What is true about the nature of the world? Um, if that's our question, and we are open to a religious answer, in other words, well, maybe some religion is a true characterization of the way the world actually is, then I think there is a question that is pivotal to start the process. And that question simply is, does God exist? And the reason I think that question is so critical is because it becomes a watershed for two entirely different directions that you might go. And I, I, I've talked about this before. In fact, I've written about this um, in more detail in uh, Street Smarts, talking about atheism. Because I, 
I am of the conviction that atheism doesn't explain anything. It It's the ultimate non-explanation. It ex explains, so to speak, by denying that explanations exist. Why is there something rather than nothing, for example? No reason. What caused everything? Nothing. What accounts for morality? Well, there is no morality to account for, no capital M morality, no deep morality. There could be beliefs about morality that evolution has tricked us to believe in for some evolutionary benefit, but that's not real morality. That's just a false view about reality that is a trick, put simply. All right. Why is there evil in the world? There, there is no real evil in the world since there's no real morality. What's wrong with the world? Nothing. It just is. How do we fix the world? Well, we can't fix what's not broken. We can only make it more tolerable to our personal tastes. Now, <clears throat> I realize that I painted a, a rather dark picture of atheism, but the portrayal is true to the worldview. And I want you to listen to these words from the great 20th century British philosopher and atheist, Bertrand Russell, because he put it candidly. He said, that man—now remember, he is committed to the notion of atheism. And, uh, and so, therefore, this comment will be in light of his understanding that there is no God. And here's what he says, that man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving. There was no goal, there was no purpose. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental callications of atoms, physicalism, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All ruins, all these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Dark, right? Painfully honest? Sure. Accurate? Completely. On a materialistic view of the universe. Because things just are. Nothing more. No explanation for anything important. No purpose for anything dear to us. Rather, universal stillness, what I call nothingism, also known as nihilism. Nothing to build on other than Russell's, as he's put it in other places, quote, firm foundation of unyielding despair, close quote. All this to say that the answer to the God question is what dictates one of two trajectories, and they lead in opposite directions. What is it that determines which direction? I should say, what's the significance? Because it tells us who's in charge. The creature or the creator, the potter or the clay. 
and if there if there th- th- there is no creator then it's all the creature we are in charge and this is what existentialism essentially claims there is no meaning out there the only meaning is what meaning we create for ourselves and by the way that can be any meaning because at this point we have to be very careful the atheist has to be careful of not smuggling in some kind of detail that is not inherent or not appropriate for their atheistic materialistic worldview but this happens all the time they end up smuggling in moral values moral virtues meaning etc in subtle fashions that that are not are not part of their worldview uh, I'm thinking of uh, Sam Harris for example when he talks about the moral project and he's trying to make sense of the moral project all the, <clears throat> what human beings do these moral behaviors or these moralistic or moral like behaviors these moral motions that's the phrase that Francis Schaeffer used the moral motions we go through what what's going on there now in my view if if atheism is true and materialism is true moral motions are nothing more than motions to which we apply meaning they don't have any meaning not any moral substance and what uh, Sam Harris is, tries to do is tries to <clears throat> provide a characterization of of morality that is somewhat objective and not subjective um, in, in light of his commitment to materialism now his project doesn't work for a number of reasons but part of it is the starting point he says that we all can agree that morality is about human flourishing okay stop right there even if we all agreed what have we done we have imported a moral good into trying into an explanation of morality itself now what he's going to say is we can have objective standards to determine what will allow us to flourish and therefore we can set up a morally objective system and he thinks science is at 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 our service in that regard but now you can have an objective set of standards for our flourishing which is a moral good but he has not established why human flourishing is a moral good what has he done he's 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 a he's carried that in he's borrowed that he's stolen that to use uh Frank Turek's characterization stealing from God he's stolen that from another world view and imported that into his own where it does not fit okay now I'm not saying he's wrong about being an atheist um, and I'm right as a theist I'm simply saying notice what's going on there there are certain things that are entailed by by a, a commitments to worldview and if your commitment is to atheism then something like what Bertrand Russell said applies and it's not just Russell uh, Richard Dawkins famously I don't think I have the citation here let me just check no I don't have it handy but um, <clears throat> famously said that that we live in the kind of world that's exactly what we'd expect if there was no God no now what's curious about 
the paraphrase I'm going to give you is that I don't think it's a good characterization of our world, but it clearly is the kind of world that would be if atheism were true. And he says that there's no design, there is no purpose, there is no good, there is no evil, there is nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Now that's what he sees in the world. That's not what I see, but that's what he sees. And therefore, um, and that and that is a view that is fully consistent with atheism. So atheism turns out to be the the in a certain sense the non-answer. Okay, it it it's it's an answer that explains by denying explanations exist. We are just here, and everything is just the way it is, and that's all you can say about it. You can't even say that human flourishing is a good. Because we, what does human flourishing even look like? You realize that the notion of human flourishing looks different to different people, depending on their moral convictions or their, their understandings of the nature of the universe. Human flourishing for a materialist is probably something akin to feeling good and feeling pleasure and feeling enjoyment. So it is a, a hedonistic kind of element that marks the good, but it's only the good because it identifies feeling good, a pleasant feeling. But, you know, we've reflected all kinds of things that people do that feels good to them in the moment, which clearly do not seem to be good. And we object to that. Think of all the people who are taking advantage of sexual slavery, all the clients who are taking advantage of those sexual slaves. Does it feel good to them? Does that uplift them in some fashion? Yes, that's why they're doing it. It's satisfying for them. So why would that not be an example of human flourishing? Well, because it's taking advantage of somebody else. But wait a minute, now you just imported a moral element that you first have to justify before you can impose it on the circumstance. And you're not going to be able to justify the idea that we are we ought not take illicit advantage of another person if you're a materialist. In fact, this is where social Darwinism came from. Darwin was survival of the fittest, right? To put it very simply, it's more complex than that, obviously. But And so the idea of applying that <clears throat> in a more thoroughgoing way to all of human existence is called social Darwinism. Okay, the strong rule the weak. And of course, we've seen a lot of examples of that, especially from um, government dictatorships where God is not a factor. So the God question is going to be the watershed. It dictates one of two trajectories that lead in opposite directions, as I said, based on who is in charge. It's the most decisive issue of life because the answer you give to that one question sets an irrevocable course for everything that follows. And that's why, in my opinion, dealing with atheism or addressing that question or answering that particular question about the existence of God is a kind of a structural starting point for all world views. And when you think about it, all the big questions then, issues of origin and meaning and morality, as I've referred to, destiny, 
Well, there is no destiny. Destiny is a is an end, right? Dest is what one is destined for, or at least one ought to be destined for, a place that you should go, a noble end, a noble purpose, generally speaking, that is in the future that is a target you're aiming at. But if atheism is true, there is no destiny, because there are no noble, noble ends. Being a noble end is a moral concept. There's no there's no grounding for morality in atheism. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that atheists are all immoral. <clears throat> what I'm saying is, if there is, atheists can do, to a great extent, the, the very same kinds of things that non-atheists do that non-atheists called moral. What I'm saying is, and this is a very important distinction, if there is no God, then the atheists are not doing anything moral, nor are the theists doing anything moral. They are doing behaviors, but they are not doing moral behaviors. Okay? So maybe an illustration would be helpful at this point. Um, the speed limit in front of my house on Jantz Road, no, <laughs> La Granada. I should just say Jantz because Jantz is down the road and it's not my road, but La Granada Drive. Don't come visit me. You don't know my address. Although La Granada is not a very long street. Anyway, enough. <laughs> the speed limit is 25. Okay, who sets the speed limit? The government sets the speed limit. How do we know what the speed limit is? There's a sign. The sign tells us what it is. It doesn't cause the speed limit. The governing caused the speed limit. If there is no government... Can somebody still drive 25 miles an hour on the street? Sure, of course they could. I could, you could, anybody can. However, would it be fair to say they are being law-abiding citizens when they do that? The answer is, of course not, because there's no law to abide by. They can still do the behavior, but the behavior would not be law-abiding. In the same way... A, uh, an atheist can be kind to another person. He could save people's lives. He could, you know, live for other purposes than his own interests, uh, on and on and on. Mention any virtue that a theist is able to perform um, that, that an atheist is not able to perform. This was um, Christopher Hitchens's famous challenge. Now, of course, what what they couldn't do is they couldn't, the atheists couldn't worship God, which on the Christian understanding of morality is the summum bonum. It's the greatest good. So bare minimum, at least when it comes to Christians, um, the Christian morality and atheistic morality, uh, though crossing over at some points, can't be the same. But nevertheless, I understand the point. If it's just a matter of doing behaviors, we can mimic the behaviors. The question isn't whether they can do the behaviors. The question is whether the behaviors are good to begin with. And they can only be good if they conform to a standard outside of us that's transcendent. And they match the standard, the good standard. And if there is no standard, then you can't do anything to match the standard. You could do the behavior, but it doesn't match the standard. Therefore, it is a behavior that's neither good nor bad. No behaviors are good or bad if there's no standard. They just are.
And so consequently, if if God does not exist, that's the trajectory you're on. It sets the course for everything that follows. And I mentioned uh, a number of them. Destiny is the last one, I think. But those are the major concerns, origin, meaning, morality, destiny. But there are secondary concerns, too, because we talk about other things. Sex, gender, liberty, equality, bodily rights, all kinds of things like that, part of the cultural conversation. They eventually come down to one question. Are we our own, or do we belong to someone else? Because if there is no God, then all is clay and nothing but clay. That's why I think when it comes to doing a careful assessment of the nature of reality, the God question is the first one to answer, since it is the foundation for answers to all the other things. Um, And I, I, you know, most Christians are not prepared to deal with that in the public square, I suspect. And this is one reason we're here, stand a reason. It's another reason why I wrote Street Smarts 2, which comes out, by the way, on the 12th of 12th of September. So we're three weeks, three weeks from today. Is that right? Yeah. Um, So, uh, but just keep that in mind. Again, that question is central. Are we our own? Or do we belong to someone else? If we belong to someone else, then that someone else sets the, sets the agenda. And all, of, all kinds of things are, are possible. Transcendent morality, transcendent meaning, transcendent purpose, and transcendent human rights, because human rights are moral kinds of things. Without objective morality, you can't have objective rights. You can have powers giving liberties to people, but those powers can take those liberties away just as fast as they give them, because that's the nature of it. There is no truth outside of, of, of the physical universe. There is only power. And so the powers can give you liberties or take them away. And what would be the grounds of objection? I know the grounds that people offer I have my rights. You can't do that. That ain't right. But if atheism is the truth about the universe, then those are empty complaints, because they can be no rights like that, transcendent rights, to appeal to. Anyway, there's a lot a lot more I could say about this, but, uh, and it's been a basic theme that I've pursued on the air before, and it's it, ideas have consequences, ideals have entailments. That is, if you believe one thing, there's a whole package of things that come along with it naturally, by nature. And if you reject certain things, then there are a whole bunch of things that are attached to the thing that you reject that you must also reject to, to be consistent. The God question, that's the critical one. All right, uh, let's take a break, and I've got lots of callers on board. I look forward to talking to you when I return on Stand to Reason. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, 
from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. I'm often confronted with the objection that Christians are only kind to people because they want to convert them. Is that true? We'll find out how I respond to this challenge in the most recent episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schleeman. Look for it on Spotify, iTunes, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And red pen logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, red pen logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking, and we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic, and subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. Just a reminder, this month is Be One of the 100 month. Uh, we are inviting people to be strategic partners. And I want to offer a, a, a personal note on this, um, just something from my own life. Uh, my wife and I support a number of enterprises. We've supported Stand to Reason for years from the beginning. Okay, but a, a number of other things. And it actually, when I write the check... <laughs> For these different enterprises, I don't do it characteristically by automatic EFT or something like that because I want to put my pen to the check that gives the money to these organizations. And I'll tell you why. It is deeply satisfying to my soul. It makes me happy <laughs> to be able to be in a position where I can financially support important enterprises that that God has that God has um, ultimately responsible for that God is moving in making a difference in the lives of people all over the world it's really satisfying to me and so when I give I, I'm not giving out of obligation I'm gi giving out of a sense of thankfulness to God for how he's prospered me and as I look at these other organizations I feel a part of what they're doing and I pray for them because I know that I am involved in that. It's, it's a fully satisfying thing for me. I'm only saying that because 
uh, well, first, for two reasons. One, when people call in and, and identify themselves as strategic partners, they comment about their role as strategic partners with Stand to Reason in the same way. Hey, I'm a strategic partner. In fact, I was gone this last weekend up in uh, <clears throat> San Jose, California, and met with some people and had different ones that told me I'm a strategic partner. They're happy to be strategic. They are proud to do that. They are really grateful to be able to partner with us. Of course, I'm grateful for them too, but this is the other side of things. And so if you have been involved with Stand to Reason in some fashion, benefited from our work, maybe even given to us on occasion, well, we're very, very happy that you've done that. But I, I want to invite you to consider the pleasure and fulfillment and satisfaction of being a regular monthly part of uh, of what we do at Stand to Reason financially to be a strategic partner. That's what strategic partners are. They're people who have decided to invest in Stand to Reason on a regular basis, and they are the foundation of our our entire financial community. Uh, lots of people give in lots of different ways, but these are the folks that we know we can depend on every month because they've made a decision to do that. And my suspicion is that most of them feel the same way about giving to us as I feel about giving to these other enterprises. It's deeply satisfying. So I'm inviting you to be a, a strategic partner. And if you make a monthly pledge uh, of $30 or more in celebration of SDR's 30th year of ministry, okay, we're going to send you an autographed copy of my brand new book, Street Smarts. I'm referring it to it quite frequently here because it will be released September 12th, but you'll get it earlier than that because we're sending these out right away as we get people's pledges to be new strategic partners, okay? If you want to be a strategic partner, just go to str.org slash partner. Takes you right there. Our deadline is August 31st. We've got another week to go or so, roughly. And um, let's see, the latest count, we are just under 100. We are just under 100. And so um, you might be the one who breaches us over our goal for the month, 100. And of course, it would be fantastic for us to bypass our goal um, by a lot <laughs> here in the next couple of days as we move towards the end of the month. So uh, once again, str.org slash partner and um, sign up to become a strategic partner. Be one of the 100 plus, God willing, over the next uh, week or so. All right, let's go to your calls. And in Granbury, Texas, this is Craig. Hello, Craig. Yeah, how are you doing? Okay, buddy. All right. Hey, man, uh, just, I have kind of a, a light and fun question for you, at least as compared to your intro that you're doing there. Okay. And that is, uh, it kind of came to my attention last year. Basically, it was about the time of the, you know, the Johnny Depp trial and everything. But then uh, there was a congressional hearing that was going on for a number of days talking about the reality of UFOs, aliens, ET, and that kind of thing. Uh-huh. And I've been studying on it, you know, and from all different perspectives. And was just calling to get your take on what you think that they might be. Okay. Well, there is a lot of chatter about this. And uh, ironically, we had a long conversation this morning as Amy and I 
were uh, answering hashtag STRS questions. There were three of them in a row, so it amounted to an entire show being devoted to that particular issue. So, but let me, I'm curious, I want to ask, um, just for clarification, when you say, what is my take on it, what are you after for me? Well, just kind of, at this point, I don't know if anyone can definitively say, you know, these are little green men from Mars or what have you. (laughs) But uh, because the way that the, I guess really at this point, with the amount of people that have phones in this world with recording devices, there's no way that it can be covered up that there's not something out there. And these manifestations seem to appear in several different ways, either something on an airplane radar signature or uh, physical appearances of creatures, humanoid or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, as far as the source, uh, I guess really that's what, what I'm trying to uh, – I, I guess really at this point it's, it's much conjecture as it is anything else. Well, it seems but, it seems to be going beyond conjecture, and I think this is why there's a lot of discussion about this um, in, in more in the, in the the culture right now and the congressional hearings. All right, in a certain sense, there always have been UFOs. I mean, do UFOs exist? Of course, UFOs yeah. is unidentified flying objects. There are lots of things that have flown around that people haven't been able to identify. Now, many of these they eventually identify, and they're innocent kind of uh, explanations, and so that they're removed from the list. But there always is this, there has always been this residual um, amount of UFOs, flying objects, that remain unidentified, that there is, they're not swamp gas, they're not aircraft, they're not whatever. And I think... For a long time, of course, any concept of this being an alien has been largely dismissed by the government. And, of course, it brings charges then that uh, the government has been covering something up. And so now it appears that there may be some truth to that, that the government has known more about this than they've admitted. And now they're starting to admit uh, more. Now, uh, did you know that they have changed the acronym, though? It's not UFO. Yeah, it's. I can't remember off the top of my I head. I think it's it, U, UAP. Or, yeah, something a little more antiseptic and vague. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's called, I actually, I think it is, I'm not exactly sure why they got a new acronym, but it, it's more, more expansive. It's Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. I think that's it. Unidentified, so UAP is, okay, I got the thumbs up from from <laughs> the bearded bear. Uh <laughs> So, um, unidentified aerial phenomena. Now, what that, um, the, I think the reason they chose phenomena is because they're, this is broader than object, okay? We don't know if it's an object or not. It's something. So, if, if since it's broader than object, <clears throat> maybe that gives them more latitude to try to figure out things, all right? So, in my, as far as I uh, am concerned, and I actually just did an interview for a documentary on God and UFOs about four months ago. It's still in production, post-production, and it's uh, uh, probably be coming out in a year or so, and so you'll hear more about that from this show when it comes out so people can view it. I'm one of a number of people that were interviewed for that particular uh, production, and I was a little bit surprised to be invited because this isn't my field. 
I'm not an astronomer, I'm not a pilot, I'm not a military person, I'm not government, I'm not into all this stuff. But it turns out that there are theological and philosophical elements that are involved in the questions that arise regarding UFOs or UAPs, however you want to characterize it. I like the UFOs. I'm just going to pretty yeah. much stick with the old. I'm you know old school, so let's we'll we'll talk about UFOs. And um, so the question is, what what are these what are these residual things? What, as you put it, should we make of these things? And um, <clears throat> here's what I contributed. One of the things I contributed to the discussion. And that was that physical things have physical properties, and non-physical things have non-physical properties. Okay? So if you have something that is real, that has no physical properties, then this real thing is not physical. Now, that seems like no duh. But, of course, there are a lot of people who believe there are no such things as non-physical things. But see, I have an idea in my mind right now. The idea is UFOs and our conversation about UFOs. But the idea and the idea is real because I behold this idea. I'm I'm mulling it over. I, I my my mind is in direct contact with the idea. I am more confident, more certain that I am thinking about this UFO issue than that I'm doing a radio broadcast. Okay? Because I could be mistaken about doing a radio broadcast, but I, I couldn't, I cannot be mistaken about thinking I'm doing a radio broadcast or thinking about UFOs. So here are things that are ideas, which do not extend in space, that do not have any physical um, properties to them, and do not respond. They are not beholden. Maybe is the best way to put it to the laws of physics and chemistry. In other words, these things that are real, because I'm observing them, I'm in touch with them, I know they're real, are not physical. Now, to me, this is a slam dunk against physicalism of any kind, materialism, naturalism, however you want to characterize it, okay? Materialism is just false, and we all know it because we are all in touch with immaterial realities every waking moment of our lives, all right? right. But m most people have not been taught to think about it that way. Okay, now, now, uh, how how does this touch on the UFO question? If there are a gen, um, if there are observations of phenomena that do not comport with physical law, then those objects are not physical. I mean, this isn't just a simple equation. Okay, now, if they're not physical, what are they? That's another question. But there are a lot of reports about measurements being made about these things and activities and the way they behave that are contrary to the laws of physics. Okay, this is a tip-off yes. that these are not physical things. Now, some people will, will say, and I think I heard Joe Rogan say this on his show when he was interviewing Stephen Meyer recently, which is a magnificent show, incidentally, and um, it's a little more than three hours long, and it's worth watching the whole thing, because Stephen uh, acquits himself beautifully in that conversation, all right? Um, Joe Rogan is kind of all over the map, but a lot of people like that, and they like his curiosity, whatever. So, But he got into this question about UFOs, and every time something like, well, physics as we know it, 
or fit the laws of physics, he would say, well, that's physics as we know it. Maybe there's all these laws that we don't know about, blah, blah, blah. So he's punting to all of this, uh, or trying to create um, possibilities based on possible physical laws we don't know about. The fact is, the physical laws we know about are pretty reliable, and if they're not reliable, then we can't even do the kinds of things that we do to observe UFOs, etc., etc. And the laws of physics are part of the universe. They're not just part of our solar system, because we can see to the ends of the universe, you know, and uh, that the, 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 the light is shifted to the red side of the spectrum. This is all physics. And so it is entirely appropriate to apply what we know to the phenomena we see. Now, we can be open to new things, fine. We get new evidence, new whatever, then we can adjust to that. But the way it looks right now is these things are comporting themselves in ways that are inconsistent with with the laws of physics, okay, which suggests that they're not physical, okay? That's just a piece of the puzzle. I'm just laying it out there. I'm not trying to make the argument right now. I'm just saying this—a lot of people aren't going to be open to that. They're going to, like Joe Rogan— they're going to say, well, maybe it's a different law of physics that we don't know about. Well, I guess that's possible. But until we know about this different law of physics, we still have to apply what we know to the circumstances. So this is one concern. But laws of physics come in in a different fashion. And the the uh, and these are legitimate questions, okay? If... Uh, Considering that the, there's a possibility that they're aliens, one needs to ask, first of all, where are they from? Secondly, how did they get here? And thirdly, how did they find us? All right? Well, I've got to write that down. Where are they from? I never said it like this before, but it's a nice one, two, three. How did they get there, here? And how did they find us? All right? Each of those are really significant problems for the possibility of ETs. Okay, where are they from? It turns out that what we know about the parameters of life—life is very sensitive, okay? And we've—carbon life in particular—they've experimented with other types of chemical bases for living things, and carbon is the only thing that's going to work. Because carbon is the only thing that allows the complexity of, of, of chemical formation to, to make living things. Okay, they've tried some other things, but they're just not—they don't work. All right? So—but that life is very sensitive. Okay, just think for a moment. Just think for a moment again when you get into the shower and how you're adjusting the thing just, just so it's just right, so it's comfortable. Otherwise, too cold or too warm. Now, of course, that's just comfort. But you know that it, a, a little bit colder, and you stay in that, and it's going to kill you. And a little bit warmer, and you stay in that, and it's going to kill you. And this is true of life on planet Earth. This is why there's not going to be any little green men from Mars, because Mars is inhospitable to life. And so is Venus. Those are on either side of us. And there, for different reasons, there is inhospitable. And, of course, the further you get away from this Goldilocks zone for planet Earth, the less hospitable it is. Um, and so life exists in a very, very narrow spectrum of environmental conditions. 
And a lot of these have to do with the size of our planet, the position it is from the sun, the kind of sun that we have, the age of the sun. It's a yellow sun. We're just the right distance. It's, we're, there's, we have just the right moon, just the right size with just the right tides and just the right seismic shift and just the right tilted axis, uh, tilt on the axis and just the right seasons and all of these things that all make life possible on Earth, okay? You change any of those things, and you're really going to have some serious problems with life, okay? And by the way, that's all of those things that apply just to this position from the sun, with a certain kind of sun. So there, there, are, there, there are factors <clears throat> that need to be taken into consideration in determining if there is life out there. Now, I have a book on my bookshelf that says Rare Earth. It's not written by Christians. But one of the things they point out is, when you look at the parameters necessary for life on Earth, and you do the math, it's a miracle—I don't think they use that word, but it amounts to that—that life even occurs here. How is it going to occur somewhere else? Now, for those who presume that life evolved here, even though they have no way of demonstrating how that's the case— and the more we know, the harder it gets, the more implausible that gets. If they believe it happened here, and if you've got billions and billions and billions of galaxies, and now with the new telescope even more than we thought, much further out, well, of course you're going to have all kinds of planets with all kinds of life just like ours. Well, that's a presumption that's contrary to fact, because what they haven't taken into consideration is all of these parameters that are necessary for life, okay? So you have to have a certain kind of sun. That sun has to be in a certain type of galaxy, a spiral galaxy. It has to be in a certain distance from the center of the spiral galaxy because of radiation, etc., etc., and on and on and on and on and on. And pretty soon, when you're doing the math, you're eliminating all of these possibilities. It becomes amazing that life even exists here. So what this suggests is there's not going to be life on other planets anywhere else in the galaxy, not galaxy, in the solar not in the universe is what I mean. Okay, so that's a question of where are they from? Second one, how do they get here? The, the, the problems with traveling through space are enormous, and partly because there's so much radiation in space, and plus the distances are so large. To travel long distances, you need a lot of fuel. But the more fuel that you have, the slower you're going to move because you're heavier, you've got more mass. And so you need more fuel, which gives you more mass, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the same thing with protection from radiation. You need protection, lead. The longer you're out there, the more protection you need. And that means you're heavier, and that means you need more fuel. So these are, these are there's an interplay of factors here that make um, intergalactic travel implausible. Now, somebody can always invoke science fiction. Oh, you're welcome to do that. Yes, well, maybe they discovered something that we don't know. Well, maybe. But as it stands right now, these are the limitations. And there are lots and lots of them. So where are they from? How did they get there? And how did they find us? How do they know that we live on this little planet? You know, they can't see an atom, atom bomb, Hiroshima, Nagasaki. They can't see that. Radio waves go out. But uh, we haven't been—I think the first TV, like, powerful broadcast of television waves was 1936, the Olympics there in Munich. 
And that was actually featured in a movie called uh, Contact with um, Jody, Foster. Jody Foster, right? And they tr traded on that. And yes, it went out and it kind of bounced back. It was sent back by an ET that was, you know, within you know a few a, a number of light years from from planet Earth, and so that was all plausible. But the thing is, is how do they find us? The, the, the our our stuff isn't going out at all. It certainly isn't going out to other galaxies, and isn't going very far in our galaxy, very far in our solar system. So how do they find us? So these are all legitimate questions um, that apply to the claim that what we're dealing with is genuine intelligent extraterrestrials from somewhere else who are visiting us. Okay? That's a problem. Another problem is the is the, the difficulty of physical evidence. Now, uh, somebody told me, well, there's claim that the government has pieces of aircraft and even tissue from aliens that they're hiding. I don't know. But uh, the gentleman I talked to who is running this UFO project that is a producer of the documentary that I was a part of, I asked him this last week, said, my understanding is there's no artifacts. And he said, that's right. We don't have artifacts. Now, what an artifact is, is a piece of something from an alien. So there's lots of reports of so-called flying saucers that crash. Then you go to the field and there's a big furrow in the dirt. No spacecraft. No pieces, no parts. Look at the airline crashes. You've got lots of stuff laying around. Mm -hmm. So where are the artifacts? Now, super non-physical things, supernatural forces, or even supranatural, however you want to characterize it, certainly can have an impact on matter. My mind is not material, but it is moving my hands right now, okay, and my lips right now. So it is possible for immaterial things to have an effect on material things. All right, but my mind isn't going to leave any debris around. So where is the debris? Where is the where are the artifacts? It's a fair question. All right. So I'm not claiming that there it's not possible for there to be any artifacts, but I'm saying that's a question. So these three questions are huge to deal with if you're going to assert that uh, the best explanation for UFOs or UAPs is that extraterrestrials are responsible. Where are they from? How do they get here? And how do they find us? Those are key. Now, there's more problems than that, more concerns. And um, one of the big ones, um, and that is, is, and I think this is the one that probably concerns most Christians, and that is, what if there really are aliens? Their veridical accounts of aliens visiting the earth, and the aliens say that Jesus was one of them. He is not the Messiah, and that there is no God. Okay, what if they say that? Now what? Now this sends shivers up the spine of all kinds of Christians when they consider this possibility. And in, indeed, this was one of the reasons I think this documentary was made. But my response to the 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 uh, possibility <clears throat> of some alien saying there is no God and Christianity is false is, so what? Not so what that there is no God, or so what that it's false, but so what that they said so. Well, they're really, really intelligent. So what? 
there are lots of really, really intelligent people on this planet, much more intelligent than me, that believe there is no God and Christianity is false. And when they say that, what is my response to that? My response is, tell me your reasons. Do we just lose Craig? No, I'm here. Oh, okay, I just heard a click. My response is, tell me the reasons. Tell me the reasons. So if, um, you know, I read a a, a quote uh, from uh, Bertrand Russell before, the atheistic philosopher, English 20th century atheistic philosopher, there is no God. Okay, what are your reasons? It's the reasons that matter, not the so-called authority that the statement comes from. What makes an alien an authority on God's existence? What makes an alien authority on Jesus of Nazareth? I want to know the reasons. And and uh, and I have very good reasons for believing Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah he claimed to be, and that God exists. All right? So um, they would have to disabuse me of my good reasons before their challenge is likely to bear fruit. Just because they say so, and they're aliens, that's an illicit appeal to an apparent authority. And uh, there's no reason I should take them at their word. What is interesting, though, and this is another issue entirely, but I'll just stop with this, is that there's there are lots of um, close encounters that are on record of the first, second, third time, kind interaction. That's the third kind is where you have personal involvement. Yeah. Okay, um, where people, where there have been claims by the ETs about the illegitimacy of Christianity. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I don't know that ETs are saying that other religions are false, but they seem to be saying that Christianity is false. Oh, that's curious. Hmm. You know, it's just yeah. another detail to, to, to take into consideration. Does that make any sense to you, all that stuff? It, it, it does, and I tell you, I'm in 100% agreement with you on that. And I, I have, I don't know if you want to call it a, a, a wrench in the works or maybe just another wrench for the toolbox, but a, a, in my mind, a more reasonable explanation. Actually, an example can be found in the Bible in John 20, 26, when Jesus in his glorified body entered, physically entered a room through past a physical door without opening it, which that kind of tells me Jesus enjoys in his glorified body a plane or a realm of existence that we do not have access to. That's right. Transmission, we don't understand those laws of those other dimensions. Mm -hmm. So as far as where they're from, they could be right here in this room with us right now, Mm -hmm. just in another dimension of it. Well, yeah. your your soul is 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 manifest with your body, but it isn't in your body like a pea is in a pod because it's not physical, so it doesn't have physical location. It's got right. an ill local presence, is what they call it. But that's an example of what you're talking about. Incidentally, I don't know that Jesus passed through the door, but he may just have appeared, which means that the physical limitations uh, were not limitations for him. So however he got in the room, he was able to do so without opening the door, and I think that's the point. Right. Well, I guess probably you say, I think Jesus was able to do it because he was in his glorified body, not because he was Jesus. Mm-hmm. So, like something that we will be able to do when we get our glorified bodies. We'll be able to 
I, I don't want to, it's going to sound really weird, but be able to translocate far distances uh, to, to, to pass through solid things. Uh, I don't know. But, uh, but when we see, if you notice that these, when, when these reports of beings are seen, they're, they're either A, no vehicles involved, or B, the vehicles that are found are nowhere near like what you described that would have the resources for, tran for you know, <laughs> traveling at light speed for a thousand years to get here from God knows where. Yeah, right, right. But, That's an interesting observation, and uh, it just raises more questions um, that are ought to be asked about these things. And I think what's going to happen is you're going to have people that are going to have a knee-jerk reaction to this, and then uh, go along with whatever these things, if if these are manifest in some way that can be recorded, they're going to believe what's told them by these things. How do we know they're beneficent, you know? <laughs> they well, have good intentions. Is it that it's all malevolent, right? Yeah. 100% of it. Yeah. I, I believe that because appearing as an angel of light. But anyway. Sure, sure, sure. We're all out of time here. It's good to talk to you, Craig, and thank you for asking those questions. And more for things, for people to think about, and we will probably touch on this topic more in the future. Craig Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye now. <laughs> 